the Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. It's been a month since the November general election, but reporter Paul Monies has been taking a closer look at the results. His latest story looks at straight party voting by county over the last few election cycles. Now, Paul, what are some of the insights you've been able to take from this data? Yeah, so we've previously reported that um, the statewide kind of uh, straight party ticket voting was kind of a factor in November's election. Uh, in fact, 42% of voters hit that straight party option. Uh, that obviously accounted a lot for the Republican wins and a lot of statewide elections. Uh, that was up from 40% in 2018 and 34% in 2014. So we went back and pulled um, all the straight party voting by county since 2012. And what we found was, was kind of interesting. It's obviously been growing as a share of the total vote on election day and general election years. Uh, we found that basically um, the midterm election cycles, like the last one we've had in 2022 and 2018 and 2014, it's still a little bit lower than the presidential election cycles by county uh, for straight party ticket voting, but the rural counties are definitely pushing a lot of that growth as well. Uh, you see a lot more kind of ticket splitting in uh, some of the more urban counties where there's some more Democratic votes to, there too. Oh, so where, where did that data come from? So this all comes from the state election board. They have a, a fantastic election results database. Uh, they, they provide a lot on their website, but they can do some kind of custom polls for you. Uh, they don't typically provide to the general public the, the county straight party voting. Uh, and we also pulled some precinct straight party voting, but that is a huge amount of information. There's more than 1,900 precincts in the state. That's a lot to kind of analyze and get into, which one day we'd maybe like to, but we just concentrate on our counties this time. So what, what else is a factor in, in straight party voting? So definitely um, voter registration uh, by party has been a factor is that, in that too. You know, there's a lot of uh, growth in the rural areas. Uh, in fact, they've almost kind of flipped in the last 20 years. It used to be heavily, heavily Democratic in a lot of rural counties. Uh, now a lot of those um, rural counties are heavily Republican. Uh, you've kind of gone percentages from way back in uh, 2002, about 54% of uh, the registered voters were Democratic voters, uh, party by party registration. Now that's flipped to about 51% of overall voters in the state in 2022. Now, uh, not all states have straight party voting, right? It's been, it's been here in Oklahoma since statehood, uh, but some states have never had it. Some have done away with it. Uh, what other states uh, have it and which ones don't? That's right, yes. Yeah. So Oklahoma is one of just six states now that have straight party voting options. Uh, we've had in the last several years uh, several other states that have gotten rid of their straight party ticket options, including Utah and Texas and Iowa. And, you know, a lot of this is kind of dependent on the, the party in control at that state legislature. Uh, you know, there's been Texas, which is heavily Republican, uh, got rid of their option a few years ago, and that was posed by some Democrats who thought it would help out in more some of the nonpartisan races and increase some of the, the turnout in those types of races. So there's kind of, it goes back and forth uh, depending on who's in control in history, but definitely in Oklahoma, it's been an option st since statehood in 1907. And only one of only six states that, that are uh, offering that at the moment. That's right. Yeah. Now uh, you uncovered a little known fact about 
straight party voting in Oklahoma along the way. Didn't you tell us about that? Yeah. And so this was brand new for me because I hadn't thought about this until someone contacted me on election day this year and said, hey, this works too, you know. And in fact, you can hit the straight party option on your ballot in Oklahoma and then go and choose whatever partisan race to choose in a different fashion. And that's kind of led to some confusion. In fact, there were some, some anecdotal reports on election day about some confusion on the instructions on doing that. Uh, but that is an option. And the election board tells me that's a valid option that, that will, if you hit the straight party option that, and then go and vote in a partisan election on a separate party, that will just override for that one particular race, not the whole whole ballot. Okay. So if you, for example, were to check straight party Republican, but there was a Democrat running for a county office or something you wanted to vote for, you could uh, mark his name and it would count that vote, uh, but leave the rest of it straight party. That's right. Yeah. And you, you may have seen that in Oklahoma County, in fact, because we, we saw um, a lot of our county officers were Republican incumbents, but um, the Democratic Demo uh, DA candidate, uh, Vicki Bahana, um, won re-election against um, Republican Kevin Calvey. So there was obviously some ticket splitting going on, picking and choosing on races that way as well. How did straight party voting figure into Oklahoma's statewide elections? Did it help uh, candidates further down the ballot? I think it, you could probably make the argument it did because a lot of the, the rural counties that were very heavily into the higher percentage of state straight party voting, um, that allowed Republican candidates up and down the ballot to kind of get a stash of votes, so to say, um, and especially on the statewide races. You know, you can basically cut the state up into thirds with a third of people living in Oklahoma and Tulsa areas and then a third in the whole rest of the state in the rural areas. Um, and a very strong Republican Party registration and straight party voting in those rural counties allow the Republicans to kind of maintain their edge as well as uh, kind of the, the more Republican suburbs around Oklahoma City and Tulsa. How did uh, turnout affect uh, results on a county by county basis? Yeah, so you kind of saw some of that in the county straight party voting. Um, some counties uh, had in turned out in the upper 50s, which was pretty good because statewide we were right about 50% or so for uh, the turnout. And so if you had higher uh, party registration in the county and more of those voters came out to vote, that allowed the Republicans to have somewhat of an advantage in some of those races in the rural areas. Let me ask one more question that I'm just wondering about as we're talking here. It will require you to speculate a little bit, but you mentioned uh, earlier that there's a trend toward more straight party ballots, right, being turned in. Uh, do you see that as either a, um, a cause or a symptom of a more defined greater political divide in the country? I would say it's probably more of a, a, a symptom of the divide, but the divide has always kind of been there. Um, I think the option of straight party does kind of reinforce that at times, especially in some of the races we've seen statewide. Um, I will say that the Democratic Party has said since the election, they've kind of done a postmortem and said they need to kind of go back and look at candidate recruitment at the lower level races, uh, you know, everything from up from school board to city council to county commissioner, uh, county races, and then up to the legislature that way, rather than kind of focus on the big ticket statewide recruitment and kind of getting a big name to kind of come and, and be your party banner holder for that race. Interesting. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read uh, Paul's work on uh, the election postmortem and uh, the detailed data coverage of that, as well as all his other work covering state government in Oklahoma on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Ashlyn Huffman covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. 
In her newest story, she looked into what happens when police use social media and crime stoppers to kind of crowdsource justice. Ashlyn, how did you uh, find that story idea? So actually, my colleague, Jennifer Palmer, who covers education, found a social media post by the Oklahoma City Police Department. And she sent it to me on Slack and Twitter and said, hey, this might be something you're interested in. And uh, after you uh, got the idea that crossed your radar, uh, what made you want to pursue that as a story? So initially, I wasn't exactly sure what the story was. So I did some diving into social media posts on different police departments and looked at how a couple of police departments did their social media. Um, and I found that Oklahoma City did it slightly different or drastically different than a lot of bigger and other departments. And what did Oklahoma City Police uh, say about their social justice and crime stoppers and sourcing things that way? Right. So they said that they can't be everywhere. So basically, law enforcement, they rely on the public to give them tips. However, the way that they use it is they use it for all offenses, not just major offenses. They use it for um, nonviolent as well. And so you kind of alluded to that. What what uh, do other police departments do and how do they do it differently than Oklahoma City does? So we looked at Tulsa, Lawton, and Stillwater. So Stillwater, they don't use Crime Stoppers, but they do use social media to put out press releases, media alerts to let the public know of collisions, um, road closures, and then possible suspects. In Tulsa, they use Crime Stoppers, but mostly for violent offenses. And then in Lawton, they also use Crime Stoppers, but they only use it for felony offenses. And then after an arrest is made within a week, they delete the post. Um, now, um, you um, your story mentions a woman who had a similar experience, but um, uh, kind of avoids naming somebody directly that was affected by Crime Stoppers. Tell us about that. Right. So when I went to the drug court graduation, I was hoping to meet some people that might have been impacted by Crime Stoppers because most of the offenses were for theft. And I spoke with a judge who said that those can sometimes be drug court patients. And so I met a woman named Angela Dean. However, she wasn't featured on Crime Stoppers. She was featured in a Just Busted magazine, a tabloid that offers mugshots. Um, the reason it was difficult to find someone directly impacted by Crime Stoppers is because it doesn't always lead to an arrest. And when an arrest is made, they just update the post. They don't put a name out. And so if someone's not arrested, charges are not filed, an arrest isn't made, you can't find the identity. Oh, uh, in your story, in addition to uh, talking to some of the police departments, you also interviewed an author and uh, a criminal justice uh, and associate professor about police use of mugshots. What did you learn from them? Right. So Professor Sarah Logason, she has done extensive studies on criminal justice and mugshots and social media and the digital age and police work. And so I wanted to get that kind of perspective to not just police, but also someone who has studied the impacts and the harm that social media can cause. And so I spoke with her about that. I also spoke with a public defender on how that could possibly harm trials and prosecution. And so Professor Logason had a lot of important things to say. And why was her input important uh, to the story? So since she studied this and wrote 
I think two books um, on this topic. She actually pointed me in the direction of important questions I should have been asking the police departments that I didn't know beforehand, such as how does this actually lead to more arrests? How does it keep people safe? How does it help you solve crimes? I had a couple of questions I knew to ask them, but she opened my eyes to questions I should have figured out later on. Uh, What were some of the challenges working on the story? So one of the biggest challenges is since we didn't have someone directly impacted by Crime Stoppers, we couldn't take a photo of someone. We didn't want to use surveillance images that the police had used. We felt like it was essentially doing the same thing that we were drawing attention to. So figuring out main art without a person who has been harmed was a difficult challenge. Okay, well, thanks, Ashlyn. You can read uh, Ashlyn's story about uh, the use of social media and Crime Stoppers to uh, help find criminals uh, on our website at oklahomawatch.org. Scott Carter is a freelance journalist who recently completed an assignment for Oklahoma Watch about the alarming rate of evictions in Oklahoma. Scott, you reported that in just uh, one month, more than 44,000 evictions were filed in Oklahoma. Uh, That was in 2019, and that that number is astonishingly on the rise. Where do Oklahoma City and Tulsa fit into that equation? Ted, Oklahoma City and Tulsa rank pretty high on the list. Tulsa is number 11 in the country for evictions, and Oklahoma City is number 20. Uh, Two other cities, Norman and Broken Arrow, are also in the top 100 at number 83 and number 90, respectively. Now, your investigation revealed that Oklahoma renters uh, don't have much protection compared to other states. What did you find there? Well, a big part of that problem is the state's Residential Landlord-Tenant Act. It was adopted in 1972. They based it on some language from other states and a, a, a consortium of legal experts that put together uh, model legislation. That model legislation had some protections in it, but when Oklahoma lawmakers passed it, they stripped all that out. Now, uh, you found a report that said uh, 2022 evictions were at an all-time high. Tell us about that. That was from the Oklahoma Policy Institute, and it just documented uh, kind of the perfect storm between COVID uh, and uh, out-of-state owners coming in and buying property and uh, just it was it all happened at the same time and it pushed evictions through the roof now in oklahoma what happens when a tenant gets an eviction notice well a tenant gets an eviction notice and in some cases they can be out as in is in oklahoma a tenant gets an eviction notice and in some cases they can be out as quickly as 5 days they uh have to they're required to go to court. They, the tenant themselves, has to appear in court, but the owner of the property or the landlord only has to send a representative. And the uh, representative, uh, I'm guessing, does not have to be an attorney, right? Just any no, employee. No, can just be any employee. That's correct. All right. Um, and then do they, uh, once somebody gets a notice that you have five days to leave your home, uh, I would imagine there are some obstacles for most people. These are people who have, are struggling to pay their rent. So I'm guessing they're not 
sitting on a pile of cash where they just call the movers and go buy another place. Right? No, no. They Most of these people, like you said, they're already uh, in financial distress. They have to get packed. They have to, some of them don't have transportation. They have to get that. Uh, I've had, I discovered cases of people who uh, would just take all the property or all the their possessions they could fit in their car and literally abandon the rest because they had no way to take it to the new place. They, I would think they also face some hurdles uh, like any of us do when we move of uh, finding a new apartment, getting approved, paying a deposit, utility deposits. Exactly. Uh, there are other expenses that come with that. And if you uh, are living on a shoestring and only have five days to move, that might be hard to come up with, isn't it? That's another huge hurdle. And in a lot of cases, if you get an eviction on your record, it's almost impossible to rent from another, uh, rent an apartment or house from another renter because those are all listed in the database and that record never goes away. Unlike bankruptcy, which drops off your credit report after a certain amount of time, an eviction stays on there forever. And it's virtually impossible for someone who's evicted, say, from an apartment building to go find another apartment. Now, uh, formal evictions are not the only way landlords can get rid of tenants, right? No, not at all. There's also the soft eviction. Uh, let's say in the case, I, there was one woman, uh, Rita Miller Cooper, who uh, lived in Oklahoma City, and she had lived in an apartment complex for several years. New owners came in, purchased the complex. One of the first things they did was jack up the rent, and uh, the tenants who couldn't afford the new price increase left, and they that they had no other place to go because this complex was one of the more moderately priced complexes and the there was no other apartment in the area that had, you know, that you could get rent at the amount they were paying. Some of them ended up homeless and some of them ended up with family. And I think some of them are still looking. Now, do renters have any way to appeal uh, an eviction uh, if they feel it's unfair or if they need more time? Does the justice system step in in any way? Well, the justice system, it's, rental, evictions are handled in small claims court under the forcible entry and detainer clause. And they, uh, you go to small claims court, it's crowded, uh, there's tons of people in the courtroom and waiting in the hall. You, they call your name. You have, if you're not there immediately, it's a bad sign and often it can go against you. Uh, for those that are, the judge will usually send them out in the hall to negotiate. The problem here though, is if the apartment complex or the rental property owner sends his attorney and you as the tenant don't have one, you're already negotiating with someone, you're already outpowered in negotiations. You can, uh, if you can't reach an agreement, you can go back to the judge and they'll actually, you know, do a trial for the, for the eviction. Uh, a study by the University of Tulsa noted that in the cases where tenants had attorneys, they often proved had much better results in course in court than a majority of the tenants who didn't. And maybe worth mentioning that unlike uh, criminal courts, 
defendant in a civil case like an eviction, uh, there's no right to an attorney. The state doesn't appoint one. You only get an attorney if you can afford to pay him. That That is correct. And there's an effort by some members in the legislature and some advocacy groups to change that. Um, now, uh, Speaking of attorneys and evictions, you discovered along the way that there are some attorneys around the state uh, really cashing in on renters' misfortune, uh, representing landlords. And I, I think it's worth mentioning here that uh, landlords certainly are entitled to their rent. And if if they have a tenant who can't pay the rent, it's a it's a business transaction. They they need someone who can uh, make the payment every month, right? It's not not like uh, landlords are inherently evil here, um, but it certainly uh, can present some challenges for some of those tenants. And and there are some uh, some attorneys around the state who are uh, really cashing in on that. You found there are a handful of attorneys that are really uh, that have filed a majority of the cases. Uh, my records show that about 75% of the Tulsa County eviction filings uh, were filed by an attorney named Nathan Milner, who filed 7,865 cases, and another Tulsa attorney, Blaine Fearson, who filed 6,163 cases. Uh, Oklahoma City attorneys Tracy Persons and Michael DiCarlo filed a combined 5,700 cases. It's a big, uh, it's a big industry. There's actually a national legal chain that attorneys can affiliate themselves with called Kick Them Out Quick uh, that uh, teaches you how to speed up the eviction process and how to get those tenants out. Now, you mentioned those uh, kind of astonishing numbers. Uh, that some of those uh, attorneys were filing eviction cases over how long a period of time were those cases filed? Uh, that was in an 18-month period in 2021. Uh, I think it ended, we looked at 18 months that ended in June 2021. Yeah. Now, it, is there uh, anything that can be done? You, you mentioned the report that said evictions were at an all-time high. Uh, what can be done to turn the tide of evictions? Well, uh, a couple of things. The University of Tulsa did three separate studies from the Terry West Legal Clinic, did three separate studies that called for a right for uh, tenants to have legal counsel and called for some dramatic changes in the Landlord-Tenant Act. The state amended the Landlord-Tenant Act last year, and it changed a clause in the act which had capped what a renter could deduct from their rent for non-fixed. If you had a problem with your apartment or your house and you notified the landlord and they didn't fix it, the original cap was you could only deduct $100. Well, that, that meant that the uh, odds were way in favor of the landlord. The lawmakers changed that, uh, and it's now a full month's rent. That could help some. The other big thing is an anti-retaliation clause, and that's where both the University of Tulsa and other advocacy groups are calling for changes to the act to prevent landlords from being able to evict a tenant because the tenant filed a complaint, went to the health department, uh, or notified the property owner of problems. Got it. All right. Well, thanks, Scott. Uh, you can read Scott's story about uh, evictions in Oklahoma being on the rise and uh, four of our cities place among the top 100 cities in the nation for their eviction rates. You can find it all on our website, oklahomawatch.org. 
You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. This is Oklahoma Watch Executive Director Ted Struley. During the months of November and December, Oklahoma Watch is eligible for a matching grant from the Miami Foundation under their Newsmatch program. The Miami Foundation matches dollar for dollar every single donation given to a nonprofit news organization like ours that's participating in the program. That means that if you donate $5 a month, we get a match for $60. They match the entire year. If you can offer $10 a month, they'll match the whole year's worth $120. For $50 a month, they'll match $300. Every nickel you give is matched by the Miami Foundation as long as we receive it between November 1st and December 31st. And as a bonus, if you happen to be a brand new donor, we get an additional grant if we reach 100 new donors in the last two months of the year. If you enjoy the work we do at Oklahoma Watch, if you appreciate our investigative reporting, our holding government officials accountable, take just a moment, please, and visit us at oklahomawatch.org. Find our support page and pledge $5 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month, whatever you're comfortable doing. Every dollar of that will be matched. And if you're a new donor, we get a bonus on top of that. We're nonprofit. We don't sell ads. This is what keeps us going and what keeps our newsroom uh, keeping the public's business public. Thanks again.